0: of true delight whom I unseen adore Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more Oh, that I might love thee more You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary, our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. I've uh, been taken up a lot emotionally, as I know many of you have, with the events in Newtown. And uh, I couldn't get it off my mind and uh, decided to talk about that. Especially now, uh, during this time of Christmas, um, so maybe it may have some jagged edges, not that other sermons don't either, but um, I want to address and talk about this in light of god 's word. but first I like to pray uh, for us to enter in prayer uh, for god's grace uh, in this situation. Uh, so join me, please, in, in prayer in prayer. <clears throat> Oh, Lord God, you are our refuge in time of trouble, very present help. You make glad the city of God when in distress. You provide that river that somehow flows to us and nourishes us and sustains us and refreshes us, soothes us and calms us and gives us Shalom in the midst of events that uh, make us feel like what this psalmist describes there in Psalm 46, that when the mountains sink into the sea, uh, a devolution, a decreation of, of wickedness. And yet, Lord, as we will see, this is just a spark of the wickedness of mankind in the world. But we pray, Lord, specifically for the families. We pray for the family of Charlotte Bacon and Daniel Barden and Olivia Engel, Josephine Gay and Anna Marquez Green and Dylan Hockley, Madeline Hsu and Catherine Hubbard and Chase Kowalski and Jesse Lewis and James Mattioli, Grace McDonald, Emily Parker, Jack Pinto and Noah Posner, Caroline Praviti, Jessica Ricus, Avio Richman and Benjamin Wheeler, and Allison Wyatt. The family of those children and then the family of these adults, Rachel DeVino, Don Hawksprung, Anne-Marie Murphy, Lauren Rousseau, Mary Sherlock, and Victoria Soto. Lord, we pray that In your common grace, you will bring stability to these families and that you will provide them with constant care and attention from those around them there, from extended family, from the community itself. We pray, Lord, for your grace in drawing many to Jesus Christ, many to trust You, to seek You, to cry out to You, who perhaps have never, Lord, to see somehow in all of this, that to hear the gospel message, to hear what You have done to enter into this world as a human being, what You've done to suffer for the sake of broken and traumatized people. Oh, Lord, we pray. Draw so many in the community to yourself. We pray for those first responders and the care that they're going to need because of what they've seen. Pray that you would nurture them and care for them. and, Oh, Lord, that many of them will be drawn to you. Oh, Lord, we pray for the other children in the school and their families. We pray for the leadership in the town, and school, the community as a whole. We pray for the whole nation, what ways we might choose to act in the light of this. Oh Lord God, may we not turn against You. May we not harden ourselves still further against You. Lord, may we be drawn to You in our brokenness, and our suffering. We pray, Lord, that Your love... Could be seen in the midst of it through Jesus Christ. I say with John Stott, were it not for the cross, Lord, I don't know what I would believe, but the cross is there. You have entered, you have suffered, you have borne trauma yourself, you have borne injustice, you have borne horrible death. And now you stand as the God-man to offer yourself to a, a suffering world. Oh, Lord, may you be held forth in so many ways. We pray for believers in that town and everywhere, Lord, that we, they, may seek you out, may be used in your hand as instruments of good and grace to those who are suffering, that they may be manifest heart of the Good Samaritan, Lord, the heart of Jesus Himself who ran to the needs of the suffering. Oh, Lord, may Your people glorify Your great name by all the good that they do. May they find You and rest upon You and know You in the midst of this. Oh, Lord God, we, we cry out in the midst of this that thanking you that you are sovereign in all things and that you use even unspeakable evil in good ways that could not be imagined, even as you did with your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We rest in you our only hope. And bless us, Lord, as we consider your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. As a context for what I want to talk about, please turn with me to Psalm 46. And that's on page 471. If you don't have your Bible, would like to use the Bible that's in the pew or under the chair, it's the blue book there. Psalm 46 uses the analogy of creation. In creation, we read of how God formed the dry land and there formed mountains and the dry land was formed so that the sea receded. And and here he pictures decreation. In other words, no matter what unfolds, no matter what catastrophic disaster personally or in an extended way falls upon us, uh, God is our refuge. This, This is the what he's, he's getting at here. And you'll, you'll see also in this psalm the fact that he will end all conflict in the world in his mighty power. So in that sense, he's our refuge and strength and then final refuge and strength for the whole world because he will renew all things, restore all things. All things will be united in Christ. Those are phrases from the New Testament that describe what Christ will do in the final day. So, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And remember, the sea is a symbol of the curse, a symbol of danger and destruction. That's why it says in Revelation, the sea will be no more doesn't mean literally that you won't go on the seashore necessarily in the new heavens and the new earth, but it's a metaphorical statement that the curse is utterly removed from the earth. And here he's uh, describing when it looks like the curse is taking over. It looks like sin is dominating. Even then, verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God Hosts, innumerable armies of angels is the point here. Lord Sabayot in the Hebrew word there. The Lord of hosts is with us, all power. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's the reading of God's precious word. I think this was said several times, but at least one person said it, a a coffee shop owner in Newtown, just in grief and pain, emotion that I well understand and identify with. He said, Christmas is canceled. Christmas is just canceled. And emotionally, boy, I'm, I'm all over that. I agree. So if you think of Christmas as, in a sense, an extended party, Right? then you think, there's no time for a party. There's no time for shallow celebration. There's no time to ignore the horror of what's happened and play like it didn't happen and fill our lives with trivialities when something so severe and so life-encompassing has occurred. I thought about how this will affect these families, you know, for future Christmases, What's the meaning of the word for them? Christmas memories. What does that mean for them now? Christmas memories. Yeah, I'll tell you about Christmas memories. I'll tell you about Christmas memories. So the question, at least for believers, does this great evil redefine Christmas? You know, For these families, does it redefine it for any of us? Do we cancel Christmas in effect? Looking at Christmas as the celebration of the birth of our Savior, looking at Christmas as the celebration of the one who saves us from our sin and who will entirely remove all evil and every last effect of evil from this world in the end. Not only do we not cancel Christmas, but... We run to the Christmas story, don't we, as our only hope. It's our only hope. It's the only hope of the world. Cancel Christmas, I say, as Kay and I said to each other last night, Christmas is all we have. It's all we have. Now, you know, I don't mean Christmas celebrations themselves are all we have. Don't mistake me. I mean, the story that God became man in order to live a perfect life and die for our sins and be raised for our deliverance from death and the restoration of all things. That story, that good news is all we have. All we have. The message of God's rescue of us and of this world from all evil is the only hope we have. And in that sense, I say we don't cancel christmas it's all we have it's all we have first i want to talk some about the context of of that the context that we face in this evil world the context that we face in this evil world the killing of these children has uh, my words are it's assaulted me with horror Felt salted and baited, you know, with horror. Um, you may have felt like I have felt, uh, unhinged, dislocated, dislodged, battered, emptied, sunken. Uh, Rick Lynn tells, with uh, at the time a little bit of maybe horror, but afterwards at least humor, <laughs> of when I fell from the ladder in Joplin. It was you know one of these step ladders and went out from under me, and he said, as I was falling, I was going like this <laughs> in the air, you know. He said, it's kind of funny, because like, what were you going to grab, you know, it's like. <laughs> and that's kind of how I felt in this time. just like falling, you know, grabbing for something in the horror of this. But, and and, and what I'm about to talk about I hope you understand, doesn't lessen this mind-numbing shock of what happened in Newtown. I want to show that it's a part of a fabric that we face in this world. It just extend the horror, not lessen it, but extend it, if that were possible. The last hundred years alone, for instance, and this is just, Smattering, but under Hitler, it's estimated that 1.5 million just children, children were slaughtered. Under Stalin, though the number given of people killed was 20 million, people who've done really rigorous study put the number closer to 60 million. It's hard to estimate how many million children were killed in that. Khmer Rouge took over Cambodia in 1975 and they were on a four-year rampage that took the life of some two million people and they targeted especially the children of educated people. They had purposes for other children, some other children, but for most children, they just put them to death. And then in Rwanda, uh, where Dowell and Beth Stackpole went this year, 1994, when Hutus got power, they eliminated close to three-fourths of the Tutsi population, which at that time was something like 1.1, 1.2 million. They killed, in a matter of weeks, 800,000 people. And children were slaughtered right alongside and I won't describe the conditions under which they were slaughtered. Only a few were shot, okay? One percent. And the rest killed in more horrible ways. Infants, everybody. Some 200,000 people took part in the slaughter. It just became a mass horrible genocide. They think some 200 to 300,000 children were killed, and then that's not to speak of those orphaned, those maimed, those who were tortured physically, those who were tortured by what they saw. Human Rights Council estimates that in the Darfur region of western Sudan, an area about the size of France, that some 400,000 people have been killed in recent years, 2.5 million displaced In so many parts of this region, all children have known is war and raids and murder and rape and homelessness. We could talk about, and this isn't talking about war, which who can calculate that, but genocides in China, Japan, North Korea, Turkey, Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia, Croatia, Ethiopia, Angola, Uganda, Zaire, Liberia, Sierra Leone. Nigeria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Indonesia, to name about half, all involving children. And so children killed, ruined by war throughout the millennia, by slavery, by inhumane conditions and starvation, by individual acts of atrocity, and then by abortion. (laughs) Since abortion was legalized in America, 55 million children have been killed, some 40 million are killed every year worldwide since 1980. 1.3 billion children. By the way, they have an abortion clock you can go to. And I went to the worldwide abortion clock and I started counting: one, one thousand, two, one thousand. Thought, wait, it's a child being aborted every second. Oh no, wait, it jumps two sometimes. So I timed it, and it's 75 a minute. Then I measured all the seconds in 2012 to today, and it's holding just above 75 per second being killed. Again, I don't say these things to lessen the atrocity, to extend and say, look at what we face in this horrible world. Look at the fabric of evil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So this fabric, this context of evil that we live in, we are actually running up against the murderous heart of Satan manifesting itself in the horrible mistreatment of people throughout history and all over the world. Even at the birth of Christ, there was the death of the boys, two years old and under, all spawned by Satan. And this was to be a a picture of the death of the babies in Egypt. Jesus is the new Israel born out of the same circumstance of the death of children. So, I just want to remind us of the fabric of the context of evil that we face in this world. Secondly, God has allowed this context for his purposes. This is the context that we have to live in this world. God has allowed this context for his purposes. They are brought out the two sides of this most clearly in these passages. First, let me read from Luke 22 verses 3 and 4. Concerning Judas and, and Jesus' betrayal, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Pretty explicit. Satan directly entered and governed the heart of Judas, who had given himself up to this evil. Yet, (laughs) that can be said, but the same author Luke gives us in Acts chapter 4. The apostles declared this, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You just have to say what it says, okay? Satan is involved in this, vitally involved in bringing about the death of Jesus Christ. And yet, God has ordained it. God overrules it. God takes that evil and brings the most incredible good for the whole world through the death of Christ. That is our model that stands as the pillar of light for us to understand that people are, have and will do great evil, that this evil is connected to the evil one himself, and God despises and judges this evil, and is against this evil, and yet allows it for his purpose. He has allowed great evil to be a vital part of the context in which we live out our relationship with God. He planned a story from the beginning to the end. As part of this story, he allowed the perpetration of evil. And as a part of the story, he has given man himself great leeway in his choices to do evil in this world. Now, I don't... How can we get that? Like, I... Why didn't he have that man fall dead on the sidewalk? You ever ask that question? Wouldn't that have been like, just kill him right there. Kill him before the first killing that day. Just kill him. Get rid of him. Is it that better? And we're appalled at the responsibility God puts in the hands of mankind. He does. It's there. A choice he allows men and women to make. And in terms of violence, it's mainly men. Mainly men. He gives us this responsibility and powers human beings. It's a dignity of choice and influence with which we have caused great ruin. But it is, in the first place, a dignity of choice and power and influence. So, there's this context of evil, There is, and, and God has planned it and allowed this context for His purposes. First of all, He expects us to live out His grace in the midst of evil. This will mean several things. First, it will mean great sorrow and suffering as it directly affects us or as we see it affect others throughout the world. In 2 Peter, it says that Lot was distressed and tormented over the evil that he faced in Sodom and Gomorrah. His righteous soul was tormented. We see Jesus, of course, weeping at the grave of Lazarus and weeping over Jerusalem because Jerusalem had rejected him and Jerusalem was headed for judgment and he wept over that horrific sadness he was grieved and angry over the evil of jewish leaders and so we enter into and feel with the pain and suffering we are we're traumatized with them we don't hide ourselves from it we enter in it we weep we pray we seek god we in the second place living out this grace is not only the pain of sympathy even as Jesus Himself sympathized with us, but it's to seek to to bring remedy and good in the midst of it. When the Samaritan saw the man on the side of the road, he didn't sit there and say, Now, why did God allow this to happen? Why would God allow this innocent man on a road to be hurt like this? And then just walk away, you know, just distressed by the question of evil. You know what he did. He helped him. And Jesus clearly said, that's what you do in the midst of evil in this world. Evil is done. You rush to help. You're horrified by it. You sympathize. Even as Jesus sympathized with our weakness and suffering and became a human being, actually entered into our suffering... And so we enter into it, we seek others' good, we seek to alleviate suffering and help, even as the Samaritan did in a time of evil done to that one man. But in the midst of, living in the midst and and sympathizing with and, and helping and pouring ourselves out, we, at the same time, must never be defined by this evil. We must never be defined by evil in any way. What we see in Psalm 46 is that though the earth sinks into the sea, what happens to the city of God? The city of God is not moved ultimately. It doesn't mean the city of God doesn't grieve, it doesn't suffer, it doesn't cry out. But it's not moved from its commitment to God. It's not moved from its trust and its delight in God and its rest in God. And it declares, God is our refuge and strength of very present help in trouble. Last week we saw how this coming of Christ brings about the fulfillment of God's promise to bring forgiveness in the world, and that forgiveness and that relationship with God and the hope of everlasting life and becoming growing instruments of love in other people's lives, this cannot be stopped no matter what happens. No matter what happens. No matter matter if these kind of things happen to us and ours, these purposes of God to bring about good in His people's lives and to use them for good in other people's lives cannot be stopped because God is sovereign in what He chooses to do. And so, when horrible things happen to the people of God, it cannot keep us from being in relationship with God. It can't keep us from knowing Him and knowing His forgiveness. It can't keep us from the final resurrection. It can't keep us from the new heavens and the new earth. And I love that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul absolutely mocks and ridicules death. Death, where's your sting? Hey, show me your victory, death. You ain't got nothing now. That's what he's saying to death, mocking it. And this, in turn, becomes what we offer to a lost and broken and suffering world. What else do we have to offer? Do we have to say, hey, it's going to be okay You'll be physically safe after this. Nothing like this can ever happen again. You want to say that to anybody in the world? Don't worry. Nothing's going to happen. All we have is Christmas. (laughs) All we have is the incarnation of Christ. All we have is His death and resurrection. That's all the world has. That's your only hope of restoration. And so... This, we're called to this context of evil. God has planned this and, and works His good in the midst of it. And thirdly, we have the only light. We have the only refuge. As stated in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. And of course, in the New Testament context, that is Christ. Christ and Christ alone is our refuge and strength, and in him God is our refuge and strength. He is what John Piper calls the sovereign sufferer sovereign sufferer, and we don 't have time to read, but in isaiah fifty three it speaks of how he 's borne our griefs and our carried our sorrows, crushed for our iniquities. Hebrews 2 at the end speaks of how he was made like his brothers in every respect. He, he Because we have flesh and blood, he shared in flesh and blood so that he might destroy the one who has power over death. And he may, was made like us so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest to atone for our sins and then to help us because He's been there and He's suffered and He knows what it is to suffer and He knows what it is to be tempted in suffering and He knows what it is to trust God in the midst of horrible suffering. Hebrews 4, the same message. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us draw Uh, Then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Peter talks about how Jesus knows what it is to suffer unjustly, to, to suffer injustice. You see, he's a sovereign sufferer. We need both of those. We need a sovereign who can rescue us and minister us by His Holy Spirit and sustain us and overrule all the forces of this world to bring good forth and to accomplish His purposes. But a sovereign sufferer who identifies with His people, who knows what trauma is, who knows what destruction and death is, Who knows what horrible pain and loss is? Who knows what injustice is? Who knows what alienation and abandonment is? What a Savior. And He did it on purpose to be that Savior. You see? That's the point of Hebrews. He purposely became a perfect Savior for our need in the midst of the context of pain and suffering and death. To which He's called us. So far from standing in the grandstand and creating the situation and saying, Y'all go to it, He enters right into the blood and guts of it. Becomes one of us. And now He offers Himself to us in the midst of our suffering. That's what we have to offer the world. And there is no other offering that the world has, there is no other Savior, there is no other so called God who has entered the world. It is the true God. The true God alone who has acted in this way. And so, there's this context of evil. God overrules that context and calls us to live out grace in that context. And Christ is our offering in the midst of that context. And lastly, we have to recognize that we have been a vital part of the context of that sin. We have been a vital part of the context of that sin. And here again, Piper has pointed this out in connection with nine eleven, but he refers us to Luke 13, where... They reported to Christ about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And interestingly, Jesus didn't again contemplate the whys of God's providence and what should be done about the Galileans and all of that. He just says this, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. And then he says, Let me add another example that you didn't bring up. Do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We, we are reminded that we are part of the fabric of sin. That's where we have come, from where we have come. We are told in Ephesians 2 that we were dead, that the God of this world was working in us. He had us. He works in us to do His will, Paul says in Timothy. Or like 1 John 4 says, the whole world is in the hand of the evil one. He doesn't mean all of creation, but he means the whole world of people against God. There's one hand, one hand, that has them all, and that's Satan. So, dear friend, you're either in the hand of God or you're not in the hand of God, and it is not a safe hand that you're in. It is said that apart from Christ, we were blinded by the God of this world, blinded. We think of, of Samson with his eyes put out by the Philistines. Well, there we are spiritually blinded by the evil one, Satan, And that's why in Acts 26, 18, it says, we've been brought from the power of Satan to God. I was under the power of Satan. He blinded me. He held me captive. He was at work in me. And perhaps one of the most startling statements in Ephesians 5, 8, but at the same time, Paul says one of the most wonderful things about God's salvation, even as he does there about we've turned from Satan to God. He says, at one time, you were darkness. I would want him to say you were a part of the darkness, right? You, you know, darkness was around you and that was your... No, Darwin, you provided the darkness. You helped create the darkness. You were darkness. You were darkness. But now, you are light in the Lord. So this must remind us that what we talked about, and it's amazing that Matthew 5 was read in the service, that Jesus says, don't take comfort that you haven't physically hurt somebody. Even your words... Even your thoughts are part of murder. And so, while we are shocked and horrified and must not lessen the difference in what's happened, absolutely, and I hope I've emphasized that in my prayer and and everything that I've said, still, we must realize I am only saved by grace. I must humble myself before God and count it my joy in Him that He has rescued me. I must all the more cry out against anything in me that could any be associated with evil and seek to put it to death by God's grace and thank Him for His patience and love and long-suffering that as I am changing and as I am struggling and as I am failing, but by His grace growing, He still is committed to my good. What an amazing Savior. What an amazing God. That though I was a part of idolatrous humanity, that I was a part of this fabric of evil, we've been called out of the darkness into the light, out of the kingdom of darkness into, or the domain of darkness, as Paul says in Colossians, into the kingdom of His dear Son. So now you belong to Jesus. Now he claims you for himself. He's lavished his own life's blood in order to have you and to carve you out of that context to have you for his own precious possession. That defines you. That defines you. And that defines the message that we bring to a broken world, that we bring to Sandy Hook Elementary. Let us pray. O oh, gracious Lord, turn our hearts to You. Draw us to Yourself, Lord. And all the more do we say, O oh, come, O oh, come, O oh, come, Emmanuel. Come and deliver us from all evil. Come and rescue from us from Satan. Come and rescue this world that groans and labors. Come, O oh, Lord Jesus. Indeed, be God with us to deliver us. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light. Oh, come with blissful ray, Break radiant through the shades of night my fears away Won't you chase my fears away